Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 155 and 156, which begin with the final moments of the Exxon Valdez and end with Gregor having another one of his breakthroughs. We get a few shots here at the top of today's clip that almost have a bit of a Planet of the Apes feel to them. At the end of the Planet of the Apes movie, you've got... Charlton Heston, he's on the beach and he finds the Statue of Liberty and he's like, oh, it was Earth all along. And I feel like showing the stern of the Exxon Valdez slowly sinking into the water with the words Exxon Valdez on it, we're supposed to be like, oh, it's a real world ship that everyone is very familiar with. Oh, how about that? Okay, that's all very interesting, but we've had so many clues and references and revelations that it was the Exxon Valdez before. Yeah, I kind of wish I could go back to the very first time that I watched this movie and remember if I was at all surprised or if I picked up on those clues. Now, I don't think I cared at the time because I was, I don't know, in my early teens, perhaps. Right. So I don't think I cared. But if I could watch it for the first time now as an adult who knows about the Exxon Valdez and all of that stuff, would I be at all surprised? Honestly, I doubt it. I bet they included this here for all of those people who saw the portrait of Joe Hazelwood hanging up in the Deacon's stateroom and had no idea who Joe Hazelwood was because it's so much easier to remember the ship than the captain. Oh, yeah, for sure. If I had gotten it ahead of time, it would not have been from the picture. It would have been from them calling it the D's. And the D's could also be short for diesel. Mm -hmm. So any kind of diesel boat could be called the D's, but I still think I would have gotten it. Now, there is a subject that we really brushed over the last time we had an opportunity to talk about it because we were distracted by the depth gauge. But as this ship is going down, I feel like it's important that we bring up how many non-combatants lived on that boat. There are a lot of dead people. There are a lot of dead kids. Ah, yup. That once lived on this boat, we saw in all of the shots of life on the D's that you've got rowers who may have been slaves. You have women who are tending to gaggles of children. This was a community. Mm -hmm. One of their main ethoses was eternal growth. That requires the presence of men, women, and children by definition. So, yeah, they are all dead now. And I have seen on places like Reddit people who are like, yeah, but they're smokers. All of them are evil. And it's like, Mm. you can't really paint an entire society like that. No, I don't think that's fair. And I know that I've brought up that type of subject many places before. Yeah. Where the average people who are part of an evil army aren't evil. They're just living. Yeah. They're just people. 
they may not all wholeheartedly subscribe to everything that the deacon is talking about. They just see him as the guy in charge who is giving them food, who is giving them shelter. I am sure that there are people who once lived on the D's who wanted nothing to do with the raiding aspect of it. They just wanted to raise their family on this ship and they were willing to be smokers to do it. I don't really see a lot of difference between the smokers and the atollers. The difference I see is between the attacking forces of the smokers, like the soldier army of the smokers. All the regular people on the boat, you know, I don't see them as being equally to blame for all the smokers did. I don't know. I might be weird. No, I don't think you're weird at all. I would actually go a bit more specific even than the fighting force to the leadership. It is incredibly easy in a world like this to coerce people into doing things. And coercion can be really subtle. You can look at a situation and think people are doing things of their own free will, but there are factors that aren't apparent that are considered coercion. And that includes food stability, housing stability, safety, being in dire need of those things is a form of coercion. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been fun instead of sinking the D's, maybe just have each of the deacons inner circle systematically getting taken out by the Mariner. So that way you cut the head off of the organization and leave the rest of the smokers in disarray. They would have lacked the structural organization to be the unified fighting force that they were with the Deacon, but at least they wouldn't just all be dead. Have the big knockdown drag out fight between the Mariner and the Nord that I was talking about before. Have the Doctor confront the Mariner, and then the Mariner shoots his drug tanks and they explode because they're oxygen. Mm-hmm. Maybe leave the ledger guy alive because it's hard not to like the ledger guy. He's <laughs> a bookworm. But think- then kill the deacon through, you know, the plane crash or having him drop off the edge, something involving the rope. Leave the quote unquote innocent people of the D's alone to float off and not bother anybody. I think it also would have been fun to let the skyship team kill somebody. Yeah. Like from a distance, like with the crossbow that they've got in there, that would have been fun too. I like the idea of letting the regular people survive. Mm -hmm. There's the concept in movies and storytelling that it's not enough to get away from the bad people. You have to destroy the bad people because otherwise they're just going to keep pursuing you. And the smokers as a whole don't care about Enola as a person. They care about the information she has. Yeah. But they don't care about her as a person They're not going to have the attitude that the deacon has of, I can't have you, nobody can have you. That makes him so dangerous. They're not going to have that. They're just going to keep on doing what they need to do to stay alive. So let them do it. Yeah. It would have been such a different story if the Mariner could, I don't know, fight the deacon to the death in full view of all of the other smokers. And there's this, oh, you killed the chief. That way you inherit the whole tribe sort of situation where Helen Gregor and the enforcer arrive and suddenly the Mariner has been crowned king of the smokers. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And Enola's like, hey, we're in charge of the smokers now. Let's all go to dry land together. Yeah, it would have been a lot of fun to see the smokers get to go to dry land because they suffer even more than the atollers do. In this water world, because at least the atollers have a more organized community. Yeah. 
it sucks to be an atoller as well, but I do feel like the smokers have it worse. And it would be nice to see them get a happy ending to get their dry land. Yeah, to find themselves pledging fealty to someone who isn't an egomaniacal monster. Right. <laughs> and at the end of the movie, the enforcer could be the new leader because uh-huh. the mariner doesn't want to be leader. And oh, he's yeah. going to do his own mariner thing. But the enforcer is going to stick around and he'd be a great leader. He's calm and reassuring. I have more thoughts on that that I'll obviously save till the end of the movie. Okay. Yeah. So let's step away from all of the essentially genocide that the Mariner (laughs) has committed. Yeah. We're up in the airship. We've watched the ship sink and everybody seems to be fine, except that down on the water level, Deacon climbs out of the water onto a waiting jet ski in the book one of his smokers find the deacon and he climbs onto the back of the jet ski and he's like hey you know this thing uses up more fuel with two people and the smoker's like sure does boss and deacon's like okay i'm gonna take your gun and shoot you have this jet ski all to myself oh i love that it's very deacon yeah but here in the clip deacon has a gun and he points it up at the airship and he gets i'd say a lucky shot In the book, a lot of different smokers are shooting at the airship from the Exxon Valdez. And Gregor in the book says, Don't worry, we can't be harmed. That was when a bullet severed a line, throwing the balloon off kilter, the basket tipping suddenly, throwing the child off balance. No, Helen cried, reaching out for the girl, as was the mariner, but it was too late. Anola had slipped over the side and she plummeted helplessly, eyes wide, not even venturing a scream before she plopped into the water and the sound was less a splash than a gulp, as if the sea had swallowed her. I really appreciate the description of her actually falling in, because it matches the lackluster fall into the water that doesn't match the height of her fall. She plopped. She plopped into the water. Yep. When it should have been like this big, huge splash. Nope. It was like, nope. Some continuity issues there. There's going to be continued continuity issues with... The line that snaps that throws the gondola off balance. Like there are six lines. It's not like, okay, you put one on each corner. No, there are six, three on each side. And it's the front right side line that snaps somehow and throws everybody off balance. We're going to see in maybe two or three shots, the line seemingly being fine later on. It's hand waved away in the book that the enforcer is the one that secures the line back in place. Yeah, I absolutely believe that somebody was able to relatively quickly repair the line, but not right now. Like, right now, everyone needs to be focused on Enola. Yeah. And getting her back. So this fall that Enola experiences, I did not have a height, but what I did have was a fall time in seconds. I rounded up a few frames, but for the most part, Enola free falls for three seconds. So plugging that into a physics calculator that I found online, I found that given the gravitational constant of 9.8 meters per second squared, Enola must have fallen 44 meters or 144 feet and achieved a velocity of 29.4 meters per second or 65 miles per hour. Oh my gosh. When she hit the water. Is that lethal? It sounds lethal. It is 95% lethal. (gasps) Oh my gosh. In the movie, we get a plop. Yeah. From what I've seen of people talking about falling into water from certain heights, 
anything over 15 meters, which is roughly 50 feet, is too high. We're talking about fractured limbs, concussions, falling unconscious, drowning from said unconsciousness. Essentially, you're falling off of the railing of a cruise ship. It's that sort of height. Okay. And she, again, comes out of this completely unscathed. Uh Uh-huh. Bob's right up to the surface and starts treading water as if nothing is wrong. Yeah, that's crap. (laughs) I found a video on YouTube of someone jumping 175 feet into water. I scrubbed through the video because it was like seven minutes long until I found the actual jump. And wouldn't you know, the guy that was jumping off the 175 foot high cliff was also wearing a parachute. Oh, so it was okay. more of a base jump into water, yeah, than an actual free fall. Something I do appreciate about her fall is the way that she falls. She is sitting on the edge of the gondola. She falls backwards, and that's pretty much exactly how she falls into the water. Mm-hmm. So I did notice and appreciate that little bit of continuity. Yeah, I'll take it where I can get it because it's rough going. It's vaguely reminiscent of how divers. Enter the water from their boats. Yes, they go backwards. Yeah. Do you know why divers fall backwards into the water? I'm sure there is a more technical safety reason, but my thought was always about their flippers. I've heard that divers fall backwards into the water because if they fell forward, they would stay in the boat. You know, as soon as you started talking, I realized that you were telling a joke (laughs) that I took seriously. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Helen, of course, is frantic over Enola falling out of the airship. She is trying to throw herself over the side after Enola. That is not a good plan. In fact, the book pretty much says it's a bad plan to just jump over the side. But it's funny because that's exactly what the Mariner does. He just jumps over the side. Right. The Deacon has a different plan in mind. He waves to other smokers that are nearby and he uses his hand to signal some sort of pincer movement by holding his elbows out and pointing with his hands that everyone needs to converge on this child. Yeah, it was really awkward. Right. I mean, how else are you going to convey your intentions other than crazy hand motions, right? It worked. Yeah. It worked. (laughs) Perfectly well. Like, they were perfectly in sync. Mm -hmm. In the movie, this is where Deacon cries out, if I can't have dry land, no one will disappointingly this line was cut from the theatrical version it's such a good line why wouldn't they include it i don't know it's a little cliche what about this movie isn't cliche yeah (laughs) that's a good point we've got an aesthetic that we've established we might as well stick with it at this point yeah the mariner i've noticed has this uncanny ability to always find the most useful thing at the most opportune moment it reminds me a bit of Zazie Beetz's character Domino in the second Deadpool movie, whose mutant superpower is uncanny luck. That's right. Things just work out for her. And I feel like it's the same for the Mariner. You could say, oh, his special mutant power is that he has gills. And it's like, no, his mutant power is that he's stupidly lucky. Yeah. So this rope that he finds. Uh Uh-huh. Let's talk about this rope. Before we talk about the rope in the movie, let's talk about the rope in the book, because... We're sticking with the Mariner as he's going through this process. Above, 
The mariner was reeling in the bullet-snapped line, but not to repair it. He was leaving such efforts to the enforcer who was doing his best to keep the floating basket from falling apart. And old Gregor was restraining a nearly hysterical Helen who wanted to dive in after the child, which was not a good plan. But the mariner had a good plan. Anyway, a better one than Helen. As he pulled the line quickly in, he relished the flexible consistency of it. It wasn't rope, but something very precious in Waterworld. Rubber. In seconds that seemed like minutes, he had reeled it in and reached its bullet-severed tip. Then he bent and tied the end of the line around his ankles. Where are you? The enforcer began. But the woman knew. Helen knew. She smiled tightly and nodded, and he nodded too, affirming their bond. And in a graceful swan dive as Waterworld had ever seen, he plunged from the basket and into the sky, the rubber line trailing after him like an eel in close pursuit. I like in the book how they specify this isn't just rope, it's some sort of rubberized length. In the movie, it just seems to be the same rope that they were getting pulled up with earlier on. Yeah, when he ties it around his ankle and then hands the other end to Helen, it looks rubbery. But every other time that we see the rope, it looks like standard rope. Mm -hmm. And it behaves like rubber. Very bouncy. Certainly does. The way that we know this isn't the same rope that they were getting pulled up with before is that the other end of it is not tied down. Because we talked about in last week's episode that the rope that they were hanging from from the gondola, was tied down to the frame. So there just happened to be another rope. And that's all I can really go with. Yeah, and in a world where rope is scarce, they seem to have it in spades. Although, in their situation where rope is literally their lifeline, you have spare rope. Yeah, and of course Gregor would take any sort of bungee cords that he had with him when he flew away, so it might have also just been on the gondola to begin with. One thing I couldn't help but notice is that after the mariner hands the end of the rope to Helen saying, tie this off, he steps up to the edge of the gondola, and all six support lines seem to be roughly intact, in so much that he can stand on that front edge of the gondola without it dipping wildly. Right. So... Magic. Ah, <laughs> yeah. And so as it's described in the book, the mariner steps up onto the edge of the gondola, he puts his arms out, and he swan dives off the gondola out into open air. And I love the sort of ticking clock that Helen is faced with, where she's just holding this rope, having seen the mariner jump, and the enforcer has to tell her, hey, tie it. Yeah. There's no recognition like there is in the book of, oh, we both understand what is about to happen. I feel like that's a problem that should happen more in movies because we have the lead who is solving the problems and participating in the action scenes. And he's got these plans. He does not tell anybody else what he's doing. And they're just supposed to get it. Well, in this scene in the movie, she doesn't get it as fast as he does. Right. And that feels incredibly normal. It does. But hey, at least this time around, he's actually telling her, hey, tie this off. He's giving her a bit of instruction instead of just running away to take care of a problem without letting her know what's going on. Because we saw during the airplane attack, when he just runs off without communicating, bad things happen. We saw during the escape from the trading post that communication between the different parties involved can yield good results. So when he 
lets Helen know, I need you to tie this rope, he can count on her to tie that rope because he's communicating at least a little bit. Yes. <laughs> and they work better as a team. Mm -hmm. That's one of the arcs that we have seen through this movie is them being able to work as a team and being better at it. I absolutely adore the overhead shot that we get with Enola in the ocean and the three jet skis coming at her. Mm -hmm. I love how perfectly symmetrical it is. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful shot. Yeah, it's very cool. With Enola helplessly treading water in between all of these smokers charging for her, out of seemingly nowhere, the Mariner drops in from above the frame, grabs Enola by the scruff of the neck, basically, and lifts her up out of the water in an amazing display of post-apocalyptic bungee jumping, which I can honestly say is something we haven't really seen before, at least in the Mad Max movies we've watched. It is not included in the list of post-apocalyptic thematic elements right. that we have addressed thus far. It I mean, is quite unique. We've seen our fair share of people dangling from bungeed cords. I mean, Thunderdome and the Doof Warrior. Yeah. But no one has really jumped quite like this. No. It's very unique. <laughs> I did a little bit of reading about the history of bungee jumping because essentially what the Mariner is doing here is rediscovering it. Bungee jumping as it exists in modern times is really a play on the old Pentecost Island in Vanuatu tradition of land diving where towers are constructed about 20 to 30 meters tall and men climb to the top of these towers, tie vines around their ankles, and then they jump off of these towers. The vines slow their fall enough so that when they hit the ground, it's not fatal or anything like that. There's actually a fun little backstory as to where this tradition came from. Reading from the Wikipedia page, the origin of land diving is described in a legend of a woman who is dissatisfied with her husband, Tamali, or some variation of the name. It is sometimes claimed that the woman was upset that her husband was too vigorous regarding his sexual wants, so she ran away into the forest. Her husband followed her, so she climbed a banyan tree. Tamali climbed after her, so she tied lianas to her ankles and jumped and survived. Her husband jumped after her, but he did not tie lianas to himself, which caused him to plummet and die. Originally, women did it in respect to the original woman who did it, but husbands were not comfortable with seeing their wives in such positions, so they took the sport for themselves, and it gradually changed from trees to specifically designed wooden towers. The men performed the original land diving so that they would not be tricked again. Okay, well, boo. <laughs> that men took the sport from women. Seriously? I have never heard that before yeah. in my whole life. I love the story of it. The idea that a woman upset with her husband runs away. He chases after her. And because he's dumb, she uses cleverness to escape him, and he just throws himself to his own death. That's great. It really is. It's also a bit reminiscent of the circumstances surrounding the Mariners jumping, where Helen was willing to throw herself over the edge after Enola, and that was a bad plan. Yeah. And the Mariner is going to do the same thing, but he's got the bungee cord. 
According to the Guinness World Records, the G-force experienced by those at their lowest point in the dive is the greatest experienced in the non-industrialized world by humans. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Also, according to the Wikipedia page, the modern world was made aware of this practice by a 1950s documentary. That, of course, brought me over to look at bungee jumping. According to the Wikipedia page, the first modern bungee jumps were made on the 1st of April in 1979 from the 250-foot or 76-meter-tall Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol, England, by David Kirk and Simon Keeling, members of the Oxford University Dangerous Sports Club, and <laughs> Jeff Tabin, who was a professional climber who tied the ropes for the jump, the students had come up with the idea after discussing a vine-jumping ritual carried out by a certain residence of Vanuatu, you know, the ones that I just talked about. Uh-huh. The jumpers were arrested shortly after, but continued with jumps in the U.S. from the Golden Gate Bridge and the Royal Gorge Bridge. That last jump was sponsored by and televised by the American program That's Incredible, which spread the concept worldwide. So the sport or activity of bungee jumping as we know it really is not that old. It's not that old. At least the modern interpretation of it. Essentially, what happened is that you have this pre-industrial nation who was quote-unquote discovered by people sailing around the Pacific, and then one of their native traditions was taken and morphed by the white man into an extreme activity that people can pay money to experience. Huh. It's kind of a cultural appropriation thing. In it fact, is. There have been questions raised about the people of that tribe who live on Pentecost Island in Vanuatu getting some sort of compensation for inventing it. But, I mean, they're never going to see it because that's just how white people are. <laughs> yeah. I really was not expecting to feel funny about bungee jumping, but now I kind of do. I'm like, I'm not really sure what to think of it. Yeah, there are enough technical differences between bungee jumping and land diving that you can hand wave that bungee jumping is a variation on the theme of land diving enough to make it unique. But still, like most things in modern life, if you trace it back far enough, the origins get a little problematic. Yeah, that's very true. But with Enola up out of the water and the two of them flying through the air, Deacon and his cronies exchange several reaction shots as they <laughs> realize that they are about to collide. And once again, we see a bunch of dummies crash into each other and explode. I think this brings the dummy body count up to at least five. <laughs> yeah, I think it does. <laughs> What's funny about this shot is that technically the jet skis explode before they come into contact with each other. Like, it's only a split moment before they come into contact. But I imagine that when you've got a bunch of pyrotechnics set up on moving machines, if they were to bump into each other and then explode, it might jostle things enough that it will ruin your pyrotechnic effect. Right. The idea is to have a safe effect that you have control over. And if those are actually crashing into each other at the same time as your effect, it's not going to work. Exactly. It's not going to be safe. Although, if they really did have three jet skis heading in towards each other, and this isn't a visual effect, 
they crashed into each other. Oh, absolutely. Their crash isn't what caused the explosion that we saw, but they totally crashed into each other. It makes me wonder if them exploding just before coming into physical contact with each other, if that means that the smoker jet skis are always that volatile, ready to explode at a moment's notice with no provocation, and that even if you're just riding around normally, your machine could suddenly kill you with no warning. Well, I'm not going to take that off the table because of the condition of these jet skis. <laughs> They're pretty rough. Mm -hmm. And that explosion is rather satisfying. It is. It are, is. Are you a little bummed out that we don't get a shot of the Deacon's eye patch floating on the surface of the water? Ooh, one, well. One final shot that says, okay, he's actually dead this time. I mean, I didn't until you mentioned the possibility. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that after an explosion of that magnitude, there wouldn't necessarily be a lot left. Oh, he wasn't wearing the eye patch anymore. That's right. He got it knocked off. Yeah, he lost the eye patch after he fell into the water from falling from the rope. Okay, in that case, what I really would have liked to see is one of his false eyes bobbing to the surface. <laughs> Because while he wasn't wearing it, I imagine that they were being stored on the D's. And so you could imagine one of them floating free from the wreckage. Yeah. And popping up to the surface. I like that visual of an eyeball floating in the water. <laughs> now here at the end of this clip, about a minute and 40 seconds into it, we deviate from the theatrical cut again to give Gregor an opportunity to look at Enola's tattoo on her back. Because as she and the Mariner climb up to the gondola for a second time, Enola flops over the edge of the gondola and Helen grabs onto her top to get a good hold on her so she doesn't fall again. But it basically reveals the tattoo and Gregor looks at it upside down. And he starts talking about like, oh, of course, the numbers, the numbers, that must be it. He has this little light bulb moment. Yes, he does. <laughs> I'm tired of Gregor having light bulb <laughs> moments. I'm tired of him jibber-jabbering about the map and the tattoo and all of that stuff, which I'm sure I will express more next week as we get into whatever explanation he has to give. Yeah, it's really unfortunate you feel that way right as we're leading into a big Gregor Explains It All episode next uh -huh. week. And unfortunately, that's really the last thing to talk about for this week is them getting on to the gondola and Gregor muttering away. There is going to be a nice little exchange at the top of next week's episode, though. That'll be fun to talk about. So come back next week. Gregor will finally crack the secret of the tattoo. Supplies will begin to run low and the Mariner will be visited by an unexpected guest. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 78. See you next time. Mm -hmm.